I'm Sin Anaral, and this is The Digital Insider, where we get to the real hard science behind the digital economy and explore the latest trends in digital business and society with the world's leading thinkers and doers. So what's the worst mistake that you've made in investing? The biggest sort of uh, in, investing in a comp- Investing in a company because I thought it was going to be successful, but I didn't care about what the company did. Ah. And of course, the company wound up not being successful. And I was sitting in all these board meetings, thinking about rescue missions and restructurings. And everyone's like, why am I here? Hmm. Yeah. And so the, the initial investment was purely an economic motivation. It's purely like, I think that's going to make money. Right. And right. ever since, I, I'm very glad to have had that experience early in my career. Ever since then, I've invested in things where like, Passion. I want to see this in, exist in the world. I want to see this product. I want, I'm either going to use this or I know other people will use this. I see how this creates value, not just to the company, but to society. And I care about it. Welcome back to the Digital Insider. I'm Sin Anaral. Today, you'll hear my conversation with fellow MIT alumnus, Albert Wenger. We actually shared the same PhD advisor, so I can wholeheartedly say Albert is the real deal. He's the partner at Union Square Ventures, a New York-based early-stage VC firm focused on investing in disruptive networks whose portfolio companies include Twitter, Tumblr, Foursquare, Etsy, and Kickstarter. Albert shares some excellent business advice on this episode and the lessons he's learned and taught me along the way. We also talk a lot about what to expect in the near future in politics, climate, and what the world can expect in terms of the next great information age revolution. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. And with no further ado, here's my conversation with Albert Wenger. So Albert, thank you so much for being here. It's absolutely a pleasure. I'm really excited to pick your brain. I've got so many uh, questions and things I want to learn from you. So People may not know, but you and I actually share the same PhD advisor. Uh, We were both PhD students and PhD graduates from MIT. Uh, Eric Brynjolfsson was your PhD advisor. Eric Brynjolfsson was my PhD advisor. Great guy. Uh, I've learned a lot from him and and really uh, fantastic to have him as a mentor. But I wanted to ask you, because after we finished the PhD, we took very different paths in a sense and somewhat similar in a sense. Um, so how did you go from finishing your PhD at MIT to taking a either straight or winding road into venture capital? You know, what did you consider that made you take those forks in the road and what was your thought process like and how did you end up where you are from where you were? Well, it was indeed a winding road. Um, it started with in the middle of my PhD after the general exams is when the wet was really, like, just exploding. Uh, this was sort of 96. And I was there thinking, oh, my God, I'm working on this dissertation that three people will ever read. That's my three thesis advisors. And even that's slightly questionable, right? <laughs> um, and, like, what am I doing? And so I wound up starting a company uh, together with two MIT professors, Zach Cohane and Peter Zolowitz. 
Uh, and I did the company. I also did the thesis on the side. That was, by the way, a very bad idea. Mm. Um, it was bad for the thesis, bad for the company. <laughs> what was the company? <laughs> it was called W3 Health, and it okay. was an early internet healthcare play working on way too difficult a problem, mind you. It's a problem that still isn't solved mm. today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned a lot from that. Um, and one of the things I learned was that I love startups, but that I'm not a good operator. Mm. And so I was like, wow, if I love startups, but I'm not a good operator, maybe, maybe I could become a venture mm. investor. And from that realization, which I had sort of in the 98-ish time frame, uh, it took me basically a decade. I became a general partner at USV in 2008. It was a decade of false starts of trying to work my way into the venture industry. And how? what were what was going on in that decade? Like, were you... Well, I'll give you some examples. Yeah. So in 99, for example, I briefly joined um, something that was called Telebank at the time with the idea of starting a venture capital fund for Telebank. Telebank was the largest internet bank. But E-Trade came along and bought Telebank. It became E-Trade Bank. Later, almost tanked E-Trade. That's a whole other story. Um, but E-Trade had its own venture fund that was out on the West Coast. And they were like, oh, well, you can join our venture fund. You just have to relocate to the West Coast. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. Um, and then I started an incubator here in New York City with a bunch of folks that was called uh, LC39. That was at the height of the bubble. We raised $25 million in like no time at all. And we almost sold the whole thing to Europe at Web, which was Bernard Arnault's internet vehicle, and Credit Swiss was taking public, and then the bubble imploded, and all of that, you know, went to zero. Um, I had to, we even had to go sue Europe at Web and Bernard Arnault with the breakup fee on the deal, oh, which we goodness. won. Um, but it was, you know, it was a wild. Up and, and valuable down, right? learning experiences. Oh yes, you sort of were an operator yeah. in this decade, <laughs> in a sense, right? Well, I was an entrepreneur, yeah. but not so much an operator, right. maybe. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I took another swing at trying to raise a venture capital fund in the aftermath of this with my now partner, Brad Burnham. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the nuclear winter, and nobody wanted to give us money, even though the investment thesis was very similar to the early investment thesis of Union Square Ventures. Mm-hmm. And then I went off to try something else. Brad had made a bunch of money in the bubble. I hadn't. So Brad eventually teamed up with Fred to start mm-hmm. Square Ventures. The other thing that I was doing, which was trying to buy a trucking software company um, in Cleveland, Ohio, that deal fell through at the 12th hour. Um, and I was really bummed, but turned out for the best. Uh, and then I was back in New York kicking around here. And uh, basically, Brad and Fred had started to talk to Joshua Schechter about Delicious. And I kind of came in, I started talking to Joshua as well, and I started advising him on how to start a company, and eventually became the president of that, and then nine months later, Yahoo bought that. Mm -hmm. So that was a very, very quick turnaround. I finally had a little bit of money, I started angel investing, I angel invested in Etsy and and Tumblr, I became a venture partner at Unisco Ventures in 2006. And then a GP in 2008. Oh my God, that that is such a great story, <laughs> and and one that a lot of people can learn from because you never know what opportunities are available when you know Bob Marley said it best: when one door is closed, another is open. And sometimes you see uh, something in your life as a a real bummer, like you said, or a closed door, or a or a disaster, or a failure. But it sort of clears the way. It, you know, the, the, the burnt brush sort of clears the way for new growth. And that new growth uh, can sometimes be way more fruitful. And Union Square Ventures is one of the most successful venture capital firms in the world. Uh, amazing successes uh, for the three of you and, and others, uh, partners, and now it's a huge firm and so on. Um, that's a great story. And, and 
not dissimilar from my story, although I clearly kept the academic foot squarely in the academic arena while I was I, I think I'm continuing to make your horrible mistake of doing the venture while doing academia at the same time. <laughs> I've just done it for twenty years. <laughs> um so you may not remember, but you actually turned me down for an investment <laughs> at Union Square Ventures. And I'll, I'll tell you the brief story and then, and then ask you the question, which is that um, we had started a company called Social Amp, which was a social analytics company, um, which was based in part on my research, but um, uh, it was uh, Matt Simbuli and Alex Chang and myself, and we came to you guys for funding, and we said, look, we've got really good ideas for analytics for social media. It could be valuable to brands. It could be valuable to marketers, and so on and so forth. And we came and we pitched you guys, and you very politely said, uh, thank you, but no thank you. And in fact, you weren't the only one. Chris Dixon also turned us <laughs> down for money. And uh, But it was, it was one of those, uh, when one doors closed stories because we ended up bootstrapping the company, building it, growing it, and then we sold it to Merkle, which was a digital advertising agency, which itself was preparing to be sold eventually to Dentsu. And the the one piece that they lacked in being a full suite digital agency was the piece that were you analytics perfect social media analytics and so they bought us for our technology and our relationships and our contracts and it ended up being a good windfall for us because we hadn't taken any venture money so all the money went in our pockets. Um, so the question is that was an example I saw yeah. from the other side of the table where you said no. How do you think about the type of ideas? that you want to fund. So forget the entrepreneur, forget sort of that kind of stuff. Is it that you want to swing for the fences and we were too small? Is it that it has to be a game changing play that's going to upend an industry? Is it, so what is the strategic industrial sort of thought process? Yeah. At at USV, I think first and foremost, it has to fit with a thesis that we currently have. So explain a little bit. Um, So, you know, um, the history of the firm is that sort of early on, we were focused on investing in large networks of engaged users, differentiated through user experience. And that was the era when we invested in things like Twitter and Tumblr and Etsy. Um, and then from there, we shifted sort of towards companies that have network effects, but through less obvious means, um, for instance, network effects that are more at the infrastructure layer or that provide fundamentally enabling infrastructure for building out the digital economy. During that time, we made investments like Twilio and MongoDB and, and Stripe and Sift and a bunch of others. Um, and then, you know, more recently, we have shifted our thesis in the core fund to this idea of broadening access to knowledge, capital, and well-being through building trusted brands. And each word there means something. Um, and these are high-level theses. We now also have a climate fund that has a high-level thesis around climate. And then we try to take those and break them down into much more specific ideas. Like we are looking for a specific thing. Uh, and so for us, first and foremost, it's does this fit with something we currently have a thesis on? Because when we do, it means we've done a bunch of work. We've met other companies. We have formed a point of view. Synergies with it. And we have, we have sort of a sense of Knowledge. what it is that we're looking for. Um, 
And then, you know, many of the usual other criteria still apply, right? We're looking for things that are selling into very large markets. We're looking for things that were, you know, your markets are not just large, but also don't have concentrated buying power. So, like, let's not sell to the airlines, of which there are just a few. Um, you know, let's sell to, you know, where there are thousands or tens of thousands of potential customers around the world. So we have other overlay criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Um, you know, and then obviously we also try and think about things like defensibility, uh, but it all starts with a thesis. And mm-hmm. I guess at that time, it's not clear that we had a thesis around social media analytics. Yeah, I mean, there's really very little network effects in what we were doing. Perhaps there's some scale effects of data that we might have or access to. So, yeah, it didn't seem to fit with your thesis very well, yeah. And one of the things that we were very wary of at that time period, which played out again and again, was that um, there weren't actually going to be that many platforms. Right. And that the platforms would make it difficult for third parties to provide services on top, whether those are analytic services or other services. Uh, and that has played out. I mean, yeah. time and time again, platforms are making it hard for third parties because they're like, oh, well, that's actually value that we should yeah. be capturing ourselves at the it's platform. It's funny because uh, it actually went through a cycle. First, they were very open. I remember Open Graph and you know, Facebook's Open Graph and so on. That was a time when they were building their network effects. And mm-hmm. then when they realized or when they had sufficient uh, growth of their network and scale – then they just appropriated all that value. But you could see that coming. Like, that was inevitable. Well, you could see it coming also because there's a long history of that in That's tech, right. right? I mean, Microsoft had the Windows platform, and at first they were like all comers, and then they were like, oh, well, we'll integrate this, and that'll become part of Office Suite, and, you know, voila, right. all of a sudden a lot of that innovation just gets cut off. Yeah, and that is that is a very typical pattern. And, you know, it's funny, I'll tell you, I have been going to some Web3 events and poking around for the last year, two years, three years. And I meet people who are running venture capital firms who are half my age. And I'm sure they're extremely bright and very, you know, well put together and so on. But I ask them just basic questions about their industry, Web3. And, you know, questions like, oh, you know, what did you think of Neil Stevenson's snow crash, you know, or does this seem like the web that Tim Berners-Lee wanted to see, you know, and they say to me, I've never read Snow Crash. I have no idea who, who is this, Steven, who, who is this Tim Berners-Lee you speak of. I don't know who Tim Berners-Lee is. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, wow, there is so much value to a venture investor, an entrepreneur, anyone working in tech to know the history of technology because it repeats itself over and over and over again. And those lessons of the past are just packaged up in a different packaging today, and they just happen again and again. It's true. It's also interesting when things do change, right? So like when the venue of competition changes, when the nature of competition changes. And interestingly enough, I believe the transition to Web3 is probably one of the biggest breaks from how computation works, how you should think about making money in investing as an investor. That's right. And one of the most interesting aspects is that the great hope of Web3 is that the platform lock-in no longer exists and that there's no centralized platform owner who is 
motivated by rent extraction and who can close off your access. I mean, if you think about a smart contract, it's essentially a permissionless API. So unlike Facebook's API, where Facebook is constantly permissioning you, and if they don't like what you're doing or you become too big or too uppity, they just yank the access. Here, we're trying to build something where that is not possible anymore. Yeah. So, but I want to, so let's take uh, a step uh, further down the path of how you think about investing. And in particular, from the perspective of the entrepreneur, let's say that I am an entrepreneur and I've got an idea that does fit your thesis. It, it is right down the middle of the fairway of what you're thinking about in terms of the economy, defensibility, and so on. What are the types of things that you look for? Maybe they're intangible, maybe they're sort of soft and squishy in diligence that entrepreneurs should be you know, cognizant of as they bring ideas to you. What types of entrepreneurs do you look for? What types of mentality in the entrepreneur? What types of team? What types of prior experience or no experience? Does that matter to you? So the stuff that isn't about the idea and the defensibility and the strategy, but more about the other things, you know, the level of experience as an operator, the, you know, maturity, the intangible psychological things that you glean from having conversations with somebody what what are the things that jump out to you we have backed and continue to back many first-time entrepreneurs uh, and that's not necessarily where we're like we have to do that but it's often the case that when things shift and when there's innovation that those areas often get pursued by people who aren't currently engaged in something else. And many of those are people who are starting for the first time. Um, I think the thing that matters the most to us is how authentic is somebody with regard to their idea? That is, how much time have they spent thinking about this idea, the pros and cons, the nuances of it? So when you start having a conversation and you push a little bit on the idea, you know, is it that, oh, they've never actually thought about any of the next steps or any of the complications or any of the subtleties? Or, or is it clear that they've actually spent a lot of time working and sitting with this idea? Um, you know, one of the things we like the least is when entrepreneurs come in and say, well, I did the systematic evaluation of 10 different things. And this is the one I decided has the most um, promise. Just because our view is, you know, the entrepreneurial journey is really hard. It comes with a lot of setbacks and grit. Um, as Angela Duckworth writes right. in her wonderful book, you know, grit comes from really having a deep commitment to the long run outcome, which kind of makes it you more resilient to these short term setbacks. Uh, but other than that, I think we're very open. We, we don't look for, oh, we only back people who've gone to Ivy League schools or any of these other things. We think that's mostly um, BS, honestly. Mm -hmm. And how often is the startup idea at initial? Are you, what, what stages do you invest? So, in, so that's another good point. So we tend to um, invest when there is a little something there already. So could be an early prototype, could be a, an alpha beta version of the some system, you know, in the climate fund, you have something working like maybe at bench scale um, that, you know, want to build a first, you know, small um, facility off. We do like to be able to kick the tires on something. So we don't do the sort of napkin pre-seed, right. generally speaking. So seed A. Seed and early A is yeah. kind of our sweet spot for, sweet for the core A. fund. 
uh, as well as for the climate fund. And then we have a separate vehicle called the Opportunity Fund, with which we can go much later if we want to. Okay. And you reserve that dry powder to sometimes invest in companies that you've already invested yeah, in? Yeah. So like the Opportunity so. Fund does uh, fundamentally two things. Um, one is companies that we're already in and have pro rata rights, and it just doesn't make sense to put any right. more money from the early stage funds into. Um, but we also do things that are opportunities where we've developed a relationship or, you know, maybe companies that we believe in but that have fallen on hard times. It's not a straight-up growth fund. It's not a – doesn't have any revenue metrics or growth metrics. It's called an opportunity fund because we believe by virtue of the position that we have in the market, we get to see opportunities. So how often is it that the seed early A idea is the – exact same thing as the company that succeeds or what fraction of them have pivoted what fraction of them are pretty much the exact same idea great question i don't think we've ever gone through the portfolio to sort of keep track of that um but i can think right off the bat of great successes that were kind of a straight line and great successes that were a big pivot so mm-hmm. let me just give concrete yeah, examples perfect. Etsy basically was fully operational when we invested. It was a online marketplace for initially handmade or craft goods. It has grown beyond that, but it's still a marketplace and the, the fundamental business hasn't changed. Uh, MongoDB, um, which was called Tengen at the time, was a um, platform as a service play. And that's before Google App Engine existed. And um, that turned out to be something that no developer actually wanted. And um, the first, you know, year plus went completely sideways, basically, in the company. And then they decided to ditch the app server. Like, they literally mothballed half the software they had written and just exposed the database. And then it started to take off. Wow. So we have examples of both in the portfolio. I don't know that we've ever done the exercise. Now, we've not done the exercise of kind of going through and trying to figure out how many pivots were involved. How hands-on are you guys? Well, we offer to be very hands-on, but we don't impose ourselves. I mean, I think that um, we very much believe that this needs to be a pole type relationship. Mm-hmm. So entrepreneurs, you know, it's, you can't help somebody who doesn't want help, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this needs to be a pole type relationship. And again, you know, We've had great success with entrepreneurs who wanted to hear very little from us. And we've had great success from entrepreneurs who wanted a lot of help and anything in between. It's not as predictive as you might think of, uh, of ultimate outcome in either direction. <laughs> That's humble. Um, it's a good way to look at it, I think, as well. When you're looking out over the short, medium, and long-term horizon of the technology and or business landscape, what are the biggest change agents in the economy today? What technologies, what social and economic trends are going to remake the world in the short, medium, and long-term, in your view? Well, one starting point is that I believe we're still a long way away from realizing all the benefits and achieving the kind of transformation that just basic digital technology, like just the web, gives us. Um, for instance, we held a one-day event 
probably at this point going on 15 years ago, which we called Hacking Education. And we brought together people from, you know, people who run charter schools, people who develop uh, learning software, homeschoolers. We brought a very motley crew of people together. And we've been investing in online learning ever since. Um, but the bulk of people still go to regular school. The bulk of people still go to regular college. And we don't think that's going to be the case, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. We think that there are totally new ways of learning, uh, and we're seeing those constantly grow. So, you know, some of our direct-to-learner businesses like Duolingo, for example, have done phenomenally well as a You result. invest in Duolingo? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Code Academy, Luis um, brilliant. Yeah. Um, you know, this now we have this next generation of companies like Sora Schools. They're building actual schools for um, high school students to uh, to attend virtually, but also potentially in person. And so, that's a transformation that's going to continue playing itself out for a long mm -hmm. period. We have this extraordinary set of capabilities, and yet we're making very little use of it. Susan and I have three children. Two of them just graduated from college. One is a junior in college. I went to college 30 years earlier. The college experience is, for all intents and purposes, unchanged. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to stay that mm -hmm. way. Um, so... And you can look at other sectors, healthcare, financial services, where um, we just have completely new ways of doing things. So take financial services, for example. In the U.S., it's very expensive to be poor, right? I mean, like overdraft fees. I mean, bank make ridiculous amounts of money on overdraft fees. It's just bits. You know, it's just like, oh, there's not enough funds in the account, so I shouldn't, like, there shouldn't be, like, this shouldn't come with a $30 penalty, mm -hmm. you know, each time. Uh, and so, you know, or if you think about getting good financial advice, right, that shouldn't be something that only wealthy people can afford because much of that advice can be produced by a machine effectively. Mm -hmm. So we haven't seen all these things really work their way through. So I think that continues to be such a powerful force. Uh, and that's continues to be the thesis for our core fund. That's why we call it broadening access to knowledge. Yeah, I was going to say, it's funny that you had this 15-year-ago event, which sounds very on message for your current thesis about inclusion. And so it's, it's interesting to see that changes in the economy and the web and technologies that happened now 25 years ago almost uh, are still having ripple effect ramifications into the current day uh, Union Square Ventures thesis. Well, and that's because many of the large-scale existing systems of society have huge amounts of inertia, mm -hmm. like crazy amounts of inertia. I mean, I remember when I first discovered the web, um, I was doing my stats homework in the MIT lab at a workstation, and the person next to me was sort of typing, laughing, clicking, laughing. I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, I'm surfing the web. I'm like, what's that? There's like, well, there's this thing on your workstation called Mosaic. So I'm like, I go to the command line, type Mosaic, and I'm, you know, of course, needless to say, I didn't do my stats homework. Right. <laughs> I browsed the web until like 2 or 3 a.m. And it was like a cold, you know, Cambridge winter. And I remember walking home and I was thinking, oh, my God, newspapers are dead tomorrow. Yeah. And, of course, it took, you know, 20 years from yeah, there for so that to funny. actually happen. And so I've learned to adjust my kind of like time yeah. scale on these things. Um, but, yeah, we have these large-scale systems that have huge amounts of inertia. And so, you know, you can see something relatively early on, but it's going to take a long time to play itself. Yeah. Out. So uh, 
you know, one of the major technologies that uh, has been around for a long time, experienced uh, a birth and then a long winter and is now the centerpiece of a lot of conversations is, quote unquote, and I say that in very big air quotes, AI, uh, you know, the evolution of convolutional neural networks, uh, different types of machine learning, reinforcement learning, supervised, unsupervised Let's just call that one big grab bag of artificial intelligence. There's obviously a big debate about sentience. I don't think it's actually a real debate. I think it's mostly a sideshow at this point. Um, but what do you think are the biggest opportunities and challenges of the current day, uh, you know, business applications of AI? So I think the starting point is it is important to acknowledge that we have made breakthroughs, real breakthroughs. Um, you know, I sometimes uh, use heavier than air flight as kind of uh, an analogy for showing people how nonlinear technology breakthroughs can be. You know, there was a dream of heavier than air flight going back all the way to the Greeks, the Icarus myth, and so forth. That's a longstanding idea. And we couldn't do it, couldn't do it, couldn't do it. And then suddenly with the Wright brothers and some others, we can do it. And then we go from there. So you have like, a few thousand years of dreaming about not being able to do it, then suddenly you can do it. And then you go from there to flying to the moon in like 60 years, basically. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, and I think we are at a somewhat similar moment where it's like, you know, um, the history of neural networks is sort of fascinating. People had this idea very early on, and then there was the famous Minsky paper on perceptrons, where, where Minsky was like, perceptrons can't even compute an XOR. This stuff will never do anything. And that was like the first winter for neural networks. I mean, mm -hmm. neural networks had sort of these multiple curves, mm -hmm. you know, and then you, we kind of got a little further along. We figured out backpropagation algorithms and we were able to compute these sort of smallish neural networks. And again, it was sort of like people were like, ah, but look, normal algorithms can just do so much more than these these silly neural nets. And there were a few people, most notably Jeff Hinton, who were mm -hmm. like, I'm just going to stick with this. Yeah. Like, this is going to work, you know? And now it's actually working. Mm -hmm. And so now um, I think what we have to recognize is that we as humans on any one task, limited domain task, can actually recruit very few of our neurons. So we have very large brains, lots of neurons. But if you take a limited domain, like the game of Go, let's say, mm -hmm. even the world's best Go player can recruit only a small fraction of their brain to play Go, which is why you can beat that Go player with a relatively small, compared to the human brain neural network. Mm -hmm. And I think what we have to come to terms with is that there are a great many tasks in the world that fall into this. They're very clear, specified domains. We as humans can recruit a small part of our brain to work on them. And so computers will be better now in the very, very near term. And these include tasks that have, have some very highly skilled professionals. So like reading um, a medical image, for example, determining whether there's indication of a tumor on that image. That is something that is a very close domain, right? Meaning, you know, there's like, it's a type of image. You're looking for a specific thing on that image. Um, machines are going to be extraordinary at that. Way, way, way better than humans. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out a great many things that create value in the economy and that people are getting paid for today mm -hmm. fall into those categories. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, I've been a long-time skeptic of when we will get to fully autonomous vehicles. Why? Because that's not really a close domain. It's an open domain. Anything can appear on the road. Any object can appear. And it's a socio-technical system. It's a socio-technical system also. Exactly. So um, 
I look at this and sort of say, there's a great number of jobs that we could now automate. And mm-hmm. I believe, and I write about this in my book, The World After Capital, we should set ourselves up as a society. We should have a new um, type of social contract that actually makes people excited about automation as opposed to being scared by it. So if you think about it, historically, automation has been very good for humans. If we hadn't automated much of agriculture, we would not be having this conversation right now. We'd be working the field harvesting, mm-hmm. you know, because that's what most humans did. 80 mm-hmm. plus percent of humanity was working in the fields so that 20-ish percent could pursue arts and war and whatnot philosophy. Uh, now, people working in the fields, it's like, you know, sub 10 percent in many in many. Um, developed countries is sub 5%. Mm-hmm. And I believe we can get to a similar um, place when it comes to sort of incentivized work. Meaning today, incentivized work, meaning, you know, stuff people have to do in order to earn a living, takes up 80 plus percent of human attention and activity. And if we play our cards right on automation, we can shrink that. Just like agriculture hasn't gone away, we've just shrunk it. We can shrink how much of our attention gets sucked up by this, oh, I got to go have a job so I can make some money so I can go buy things. We can shrink that dramatically, I believe. That's a that's the big one of the big opportunities for humanity. And what does the shifted human experience look like when the uh, automatable and best-to-automate tasks have been automated? Where does our attention go? What do we focus on? The Beautiful thing is that there is no shortage of exciting things to pay attention to, right? Um, and they come in many different forms from just paying more attention to your friends and family or to yourself, like, why am I here? What's my purpose? Or to hobbies or to music, art, or to restoring the environment or to taking care of animals. I mean, there's just a merit of things to research, to exploring space. I mean, there's just no shortage of super exciting things. Um, what's interesting, though, is that many of those things don't have markets and so they don't have price signals. So we need to, as humans, free ourselves up and also kind of not believe that markets are going to solve everything. Markets are very, very good at those things for which prices can exist. But take, for example, what I call sort of, you know, death from above, which is, you know, like objects hitting us from outer space, for example. That happens in a big way, like every million-ish or so years. There's no market for that. There's no market price. So the amount of human attention, if you were relying on markets that would be allocated to that, would be de minimis or zero. So we need to create systems where humans go, oh, that's an interesting problem. I've learned about this in school, and I want to work on that because that's exciting. I want to be able to deflect asteroids. I want to detect asteroids. That seems important. And so to me, so much of this is about creating society in terms of how we think about education, how we think about um, our social contract, where people can be like, wow, that's an exciting problem that I want to work on without somebody having to say, oh, you know, there's an economic price at the end of that. And that's why you're working on it. So do you mean to say that we would have the freedom of institutions and time to subsidize that work? Or do you mean to say that people are just going to work on that for free and it's going to be completely untethered to any economic need to work on that. I think it's a little bit of both. So yeah. in the book, I, I, I'm, I am a big proponent of some kind of form of unconditional or universal basic income. And I've yeah. been a proponent of that for a decade now. Um, so at a baseline, just freeing people up to say, hey, I want to learn this new thing. I want to learn about asteroids and meteorites and the Oort cloud and, you know, rocket technology and so forth. And I'm going to do that on my own time. Um, I also think we need 
to direct social society's resources towards some of those problems. So there is also still, this doesn't substitute for some kind of collective democratic process by which we go, oh, this is an important thing that we as a society ought to allocate resources to. The two don't, they, they work in concert with each other. So what are the types of human tasks that you think AI should be pointed at? Oh, I think pretty much anything that we can point it at. You know, I, I think there's a ton of work, um, whether it's documents, document processing. Um, we just talked about image processing. I do think medical diagnosis more generally. Um, if you think about diagnosis, it's there's a it, it is to some degree a closed domain, right? There's a certain set of symptoms and there's a certain set of diseases. And there's kind of a detective inference work of, okay, they're observing certain symptoms. What are some tests I should possibly order? And then I get the results from those tests. Which direction does that lead me? That's very amenable to machine intelligence. And now if we had machines that can do this, we could extend great diagnosis to everybody in the world because the marginal cost of running a diagnosis modular, the tests themselves, is basically free. Uh, and so um, I think we should throw automation as at, at many things as we possibly can. Um, because, by the way, this doesn't mean that there won't be room for humans at all. I believe that there'll be many things where we will have humans, qua humans. What do I mean by that? We've had recorded music for quite a long time, yet people love going to concerts, right? There's something about a live performance. Now, let's imagine we had great robots that can serve meals, that can cook meals and serve meals. We will still want meals cooked by humans. And in fact, the demand for meals cooked by humans or the price of those may go up significantly because you're like, oh, you know, somebody is putting their feeling and their emotion and themselves into this. They're doing this. Um, you know, I own a sailboat. I mean, motorboats are way faster. Like, there's a lot of things that we do, not because they're like economical, but because they have a huge emotional content. And so, when I say automate everything, I'm not envisioning a world where there's only robot waiters. But on the other hand, like we have aging populations and we have, will have, unless we want to have ever growing populations, we will have a situation where we need automation to help take care of people. Does that mean that's the only thing? No, it's not the only thing, but like it'd be good to have it. <laughs> hmm. I love it. I think that's a great that's a great sort of way to think about it. It's funny because automation sometimes scares people because there are transition costs. You know, skill bias, technical change comes with cost. I think it has to uh, be thought about in terms of uh, what happens to the jobs, the people whose jobs are automated away. What's the reskilling? What's the that you know David Otter's work on skill bias, technical change, and and other people. Uh, you know, suggests that there are trans transition costs oh, that have the, to be thought about, obviously. The transition is the problem. Right. But it's even bigger than I think when we think about reskilling, it's too small. And I right. I love David's work. And um there was a very funny moment when I was at a conference and David was speaking, um, and he was making a point about how extraordinarily how much foresight people had when they realized that in the industrial age, there were going to be new skills needed, and they started all these schools. Um, and then, but his conclusion from that was that we should just tweak schools. When my conclusion is, no, no, the transition that we're in now is as big as the transition mm. from the agrarian age maybe, to the Maybe bigger. Possibly bigger. Yeah. And first of all, if you think of that transition, we changed pretty much everything about humanity. That's right. And we made these 
and the transition was pretty brutal because it involved That's a variety right. of revolutions and ultimately two That's world right. wars. But it was funny how David was sort of picking up on this idea that, oh, people were actually had a lot of foresight because they started these schools. But then in the current situation, his reaction was sort of like, oh, but now it's about reskilling. In my mind, it's it's much more profound than mm. reskilling. It's much more, it goes towards what do people think their purpose in life is? Mm. We have had a 200-year period where we've told people your purpose is basically to find a good job, to work hard, to make money, to consume. Like, that's mm -hmm. what we've sold people as purpose. And when you take that away, you shouldn't wonder that people are rudderless. Mm -hmm. uh, Super fundamental. It's the, the rethinking. very deep. Yeah. And by the way, that was a change in how people thought about purpose from the agrarian age. So in the agrarian age, you had these sort of great chain of being theologies. Mm -hmm. So basically, theology was like, you're a farmer. I'm going to tell you what it means to be a good farmer. You work in the fields. You seed the ground and so forth. But by the way, you'll never be a noble person because you weren't born as one tough noogies, right? Mm -hmm. And we shifted from that to the Protestant work ethic where it's like the harder you work, the better off you will be. And by the way, wealth is not a sin. And mm -hmm. all like these are very profound changes. Mm -hmm. And we need changes on that order. And the interesting thing is – once I start talking about these, all the changes I want to see in the world, people are often like, oh, Albert, you're utopian. Like, we can't change everything. Like, and I'm like, no, we've literally changed everything twice already. We changed everything 10,000 years ago when we went from being hunter-gatherers to being right. agrarians. We changed, yeah. we went from being migratory to being sedentary. We went from living in very flat tribal societies to living in extremely hierarchical agrarian societies. We went from being promiscuous to being monogamous-ish. Mm -hmm. We went from having animistic religions to having theistic religions. So th those are really, really profound yeah. changes. Then a couple hundred years ago, going from the agrarian age to the industrial age, we went from being living in the country, living in the city. We went from living in large extended family to living in nuclear family or no family. We went from lots of commons to private property being dominant, including intellectual private property. And we went from, as I just said, great chain of being to Protestant work ethic. By the way, those happen globally. You can look at new Confucianism. It's basically the invention of Protestantism just in, mm. in, in the Asian realm. So, so these are super crazy profound transitions. And they happen because we have a big technological mm -hmm. unlock. And now we have a big technological unlock. And all the politicians are like, oh, some incremental change, like the interest rate policy, the Fed's going to do this, some reskilling, and it'll all be fine. And that's just not true. And people know it's not true. And it hasn't been true for like 20 years or so. The sort of the expiration date on the industrial age is whatever, 10, 20 years ago. And because it hasn't been true, and because we've pretended that it's true, that has opened the door for populism. Mm-hmm. Because people feel like, no, this stuff you keep talking about, it's just not working. Mm -hmm. It may be working for you, right. the elites and the cities and everybody else who's much better off. Well, but it's not working. concentration is real today. Yeah. Very real. Yeah. And it, but it's not working for where I am. That's you right. Know? So, so I believe the right answer is we need deep fundamental transformational change, not incremental change. Mm -hmm. So I want to switch gears and I'm going to give you a, a question with very little overture because I want to hear your unbridled opinion. I don't want to lead the witness in any way, um, but I have a bunch of opinions and then we'll get into it. Um, what is your opinion and, and series of thoughts about Web3, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs, uh, cryptocurrencies, period, or question mark? <laughs> At the heart of it, there is a critical, amazing innovation, which is achieving consensus in a decentralized fashion. And that's 
not something we knew how to do. So if you look in the history of computation, we kind of had distributed or federated databases, but they were always of a nature where you kind of designated a bunch of people and you sort of said, you know, you four or five, whatever, you operate the database together. And so, you know, you couldn't just, not anybody could join the consensus. People couldn't leave the consensus. The consensus was very well defined in a small group of um, mm -hmm. companies. The vast bulk of systems, by the way, that we built are actually a single decision maker. So if you mm -hmm. think of Amazon, it's a gigantic database of SKUs, people's payment credentials, their purchase histories. If you think of Facebook, it's a gigantic database of people's profiles, their friend graphs, and their status updates. If you think of Google, it's a gigantic database of web pages, mm -hmm. people's identities, and their search histories. So at the heart of all these are these huge databases. And these databases are what power the network effect, essentially. So we have this fundamental breakthrough where we can have networks, where we can have consensus, we can agree on what the state of the world is inside of a database, <clears throat> and we can do that in a decentralized fashion, meaning there isn't any one party that controls this consensus and that can exploit it, that can appropriate its economic benefits. That is a huge, extraordinary, foundational breakthrough. Having said this, unlike when the web came around, and when the web came around, Politicians all around the world were like, this is a good thing. We should foster this. We should create all sorts of safe harbors. In the U.S., no sales tax on the Internet at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, the safe harbor of the Telecommunication Decency Act. The safe harbor of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. I mean, these were extraordinary regulatory tailwinds. Mm -hmm. When it comes to Web3, it's regulatory headwinds all the way. And why is that? Well, one of the reasons is because one of the things you can do when you can have decentralized consensus is you can create money. And that has been the purview of governments to date. And governments are not stupid. So I think a lot of people in Web3 think that it's a question of people in government not getting it. I think it's the exact opposite. Exactly. It's people in government very much getting it and going, we don't like it. Right. Yeah, 100%. So you think that... Uh, Great fundamental transformative underlying technology facing because it sort of upends institutions in such a massive way, uh, you know, what will be a prolonged resistance slash backlash slash regulatory. Absolutely. Headlines. And yeah. it's the most powerful institutions in the world. It's right. the governments and it's and the banks. banks. Right. So decentralization. Is it really decentralized? I mean, let's look at the the Ethereum community. Let's look at the blockchain uh, of Bitcoin, the mining pools, uh, the developers, and so on. Is this really just a, a small handful of people making decisions? I mean, you've got the DAO hack and the Ethereum hard fork, You and just a week ago or two weeks ago now, I don't know what day it is, uh, <clears throat> the Binance Bridge hack and, you know, it's just a couple of phone calls to a small number of miners stopped all trading on Binance. So is it that it's decentralized or is it just that it has the potential to be but isn't now? Is it trending towards more centralization or decentralization? Is it really this ideal that you describe? It has the potential to be that, right? And Bitcoin, I think, has shown extraordinary resiliency um, of the kind that I don't think centralized systems show, right? I mean, so you had China going, oh, no Bitcoin mining, and Bitcoin mining migrated um, virtually, you know, not overnight, but in a relatively short order, and hash power just migrated around the world. Um, so I think we're seeing 
aspects of the type of resiliency that you just don't get in centralized systems. Mm -hmm. Centralized systems, you know, have a single choke point, and when that point gets choked, the system collapses. Uh, and so I do think we see clear signs that these systems show aspects of being decentralized. Um, could they be more decentralized? Potentially, yes. But are they in the right direction? Absolutely. And I think that's even true for Ethereum. Um, you know, um, there are some people with influence, but today, for example, um, the the equivalent of the DAO hack and forking Ethereum, I don't think would happen. You, know? you don't think it happened today? I don't think yeah. it would happen today. I don't think it could happen today. Mm -hmm. I just think it's sufficiently decentralized that in Ethereum, you can't call a couple of people and say, reset the, the, the state machine, please. Um, right. What about and Binance Chain, it's different because Binance Chain is Binance. You know, um, it is not a very decentralized thing at all. That's right. So there are different versions of this. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there are central, more centralized where you've got Ripple on one side, a Binance on one side. You've yeah. got more sort of Ethereum, Bitcoin on the other side. And you've got this, what, what uh, some people have called this, um, this uh, technology trilemma in, in blockchain where you can have security or decentralization or scale, you can have two of the three, but you can't have all three is sort of a trilemma that's been proposed. Yeah, and, and, and I believe we are still in the phase where we're very much exploring the design space. And, mm -hmm. and this is also very complex technology, and we're having very rapid innovation cycles. And you do have potential systems like, you know, Algorand, which was designed mm -hmm. by Sylvia McCauley at MIT, it's sort of a pure proof of stake system that does seem to um, do a very good um, way of dealing with this trilemma where you <clears throat> can have both a high degree of decentralization, you can have fast throughput, um, so you can deal with the scaling and you can have a high degree of security. We're also, there's also a huge amount of work happening on putting zero knowledge infrastructure as a, as a foundation for a lot of this. So <clears throat> I look at this and go, um, we're still very much in the phase where We've made a fundamental technological breakthrough, and we're rapidly iterating on it. Uh, and so I don't think there's a definitive conclusion yet on where like this will wind up. Um, you know, Ethereum has proven to be very resilient. Mm -hmm. It's decentralized in a couple of different ways. It's decentralized also in the sense that there's a large developer ecosystem mm -hmm. on top of it. Um, and it has enabled decentralized innovation in terms of the layer two. The layer two, mm -hmm. there's many different layer two projects. All of that is a way of saying, I believe we're a long way from where we're like, oh, this is the sort of settled, you know, yep. um, web three set of systems. Yeah. I sort of tend to agree. I am, uh, I am bullish on the space. I do think it is fundamentally transformative in all the ways that you describe it. Uh, and I think it has very real application spaces, numerous application spaces that are potentially disruptive to current industries in a lot of ways. And by the way, people love to poo-poo NFTs. Right. Um, I wrote a blog post in 2009 where I wrote about um, digital music, and I didn't call it NFTs. The word didn't exist. But I basically said, look, you know, we have now the technology to separate out copyability from um, quote unquote ownership, right. Or bragging rights, if you so want. Right. And, um, I think that's again, a fundamental innovation. I can give you an image and I can say, you can copy this image, but there can only ever be 10 people or some limited number of people who can say, 
I am one of the owners of this image. And people say, well, what does it mean to own it if anybody else can copy it? It's bragging rights at the end of the day. Right. It's sort of saying, I discovered this early or I bought it at some point or I had the money to afford it. Like, it's very much many of the same reasons that people um, collect art and people ask, people collect art only for exclusion. I just don't think that's right. Um, I think there are many motives in collecting and there can also be a financial motive in collecting if you think this will appreciate further. And it makes so many amazing things possible. Like so much art gains value over time and the original creator don't doesn't benefit from it um, because they're completely cut out from the resale. Once you make the resale algorithmic and you do it on chain, you can say, well, every time there's a resale, the artist gets 10%, 20%. Mm-hmm. All of those things become possible. And so when people look at that and they go, oh, there's nothing to see here, I'm like, it's, it's, how can you say yeah. that? It's, 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 it's clearly so, cl- so much there. I, I, I agree with you. So, so you have to separate the things to which NFTs are being applied now, whether it's a particular drawing of an ape or a cyberpunk, to the open your mind to what the possibilities of sort of like digital ownership are. And I'll give you an example. So John Horton and I are kicking around the idea of sort of revisiting information rules, Hal Varian and Carl Shapiro's sort of rules for the information age to think about, well, you know, they were describing economic properties of digital goods uh, back then as sort of revolutionarily different than uh, the way we thought about goods and products prior to the digitization, right? So it's zero marginal cost of production, you know, infinite reproducibility with zero loss and fidelity, you know, it's um, non-excludability. Yep. Oh, and then you stop right there and you say, wait a minute, today's version of a digital good can be completely excludable, Right. Because in an NFT space, it serves as a deed and I can say I'm the sole owner and I can validate and prove that I'm an owner. So when you tweak one of the rules, how do the complementary rules change and what are the new economics of that and what are the new what is the new landscape of opportunity? I'll give you another example. We've been thinking a little bit about this notion of scarcity. Right. So when you think about the scarcity of physical goods, it's binary or it's some sort of, you know, like single dimension of scarcity. You have OPEC and Russia just colluded to reduce the number of barrels of oil. And it's just a single dimension, like how many barrels of crude oil are there? How much gold is there? But when you think about digital goods, assuming there's some constant or large enough demand, You want to make it excludable and scarce enough that it's valuable. But now it's not that there's a single dimension of scarcity. Now you have every product has multiple infinite number of imaginable dimensions. You know, you think about apes, you've got hair, you've got, you know, earrings, you've got the shirt that they're wearing, the background. And you can set the knobs on that to be rare, super rare, more common. And now the space of scarcity is an n-dimensional space. And then the question becomes, well, how would you fill that space in to maximize profit? Would it be a lattice-type structure? Would it be clustered? Like if similar dimensions are similarly rare, is that more valuable than the rare dimensions being far apart from each other in the space? And We've never thought about digital no. goods that we, way ever we, before. We, we didn't have the capability. We didn't have the capability. Yeah. And we didn't have the capability to impose new information rules, quote unquote, in a way that would open up that uh, that strategy yeah. space in, in the way that I've described it. And I really think that that is going to create 
all sorts of man hours of thinking that need to be done and creative thinking. That's not rote automation thinking. That is sort of like whenever I think about where uh, creativity, what creativity means, it's where there's a greater weight on possibility than on sort of execution in yeah. a sense, you know? I, so, I, 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 I agree with that. And, and also, um, you know, these things are also all going to interact with each other. We talked about AI earlier, and obviously we now have all this generative AI. A lot of it has been trained on the work of artists. And now that some artists are saying, well, that's kind of, you know, expropriating my economics. Uh, I would suggest that if many of those artists were making their art available as NFTs, this would actually be driving the demand for their art. Because it's like, oh my God, there are all these pictures being made in the style of so-and-so, but that means so-and-so is important. So the value of, if they had, some artists out as NFTs will be going up quite rapidly. So I do think that, you know, we're in, again, we're in this interim stage where our capabilities and our infrastructure and how we think about things are misaligned. And so some things feel like they're um, bad when, in fact, I think if you could fast forward to the future state, you'd see that they're actually good. So a question just riffing on that point. Think about the two recent examples of art being created as an nft and then the original art being burned so you have for example the david hurst right also so, just did this yeah so so there's a, a a banksy that was bought a video of the burning of the banksy and then represented by an nft and then a similar thing was done with a frida kahlo painting uh and it was done for charity Funnily enough, in that second example, um, the Mexican authorities said that that was a violation of federal law because her works are national treasure. So to burn one is is actually a violation of Mexican federal law. Well, and, and also artists have moral rights in their right. works um, that people often don't understand what that means. You know, there's a famous case here in New York where um, somebody commissioned an artwork to be painted on a wall in their house, and then they wanted to remove the wall, and the artist basically said no. Oh, wow. that's, that's, does this go back to the statute of Anne, or where's the where's the origin um, of the I, moral I, rights? I, yeah, moral rights—they don't exist in all parts of the world, okay. but yeah. Okay, so so just in going back to the example, you've got this physical good or product or or creative masterpiece, um, and then you create an NFT that represents or points to that thing and is supposed to embody all of the value and 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 human you know, creativity of that thing. It, it's supposed to absorb that value and unlock new value in the ways that you can assign and transfer rights around that value. And then you burn the original where, I mean, because that's in a sense what you're asking about when you describe people, we think it's bad, right? So like my knee jerk reaction is to say that burning the original masterpiece is bad but maybe I'm not wrapping my mind around where the value is and where the human conception and assignment of where the cultural value is. My thinking is that it's in that painting that you burned. And, and, but you're saying to me, it may seem bad to you, but if we could just wrap our heads around the, the Frito Kahlo you know, value has now been assigned to this digital NFT. No, I, I, so burning I, I, the painting I, I, that, is okay. That's not really, I think, the argument I'm okay. making. I, 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 I I just think we ought to allow for a lot of experimentation to happen, including some of this. I, I do think it's problematic with works that 
where the artist isn't the one making that decision. Mm. You know, like Damien Hirst burning his own works, I think mm. is very different from somebody taking Frida Kahlo's painting. Mm. Uh, so I do think um, these point. aren't all on the same level. The point I was making more was around saying, oh my God, we shouldn't allow machines to be trained on existing art and those machines to make art because that's an expropriation of the artist. Mm. Uh, and I'm sort of saying it could also simply be that it makes the art from that artist more desirable and more valuable and i can I also see. envision a future system where when you train um you in order to ingest you need to actually make some micropayment to ingest so i think there's just mm. all sorts of because if somebody says oh you had this thing in your training data but you didn't actually have any rights to put it in your training data all of these things become possible with digital infrastructure and i don't I'm not proclaiming that I have enough foresight to say which of these are going to work out, which of these. All I'm saying is we have cracked open the space of the possible massively. Mm -hmm. yeah. And whenever we crack open the space of the possible massively, it will include some things that are bad and some things that are good. That's the nature, actually, of technology. I write about this in the book. So. The first human technology is fire. Mm -hmm. And fire is great for cooking. That was, by the way, a massive unlock because meat has way more calories when you cook it. Um, you can use it to make bricks. You know, you can use it to make um, other objects. You can use it to warm yourself. But you can also use it to burn down somebody else's village, mm -hmm. right? right? And so whenever we have a technological unlock, it includes both good and bad use right. cases. And so much of what we need to do as a society is not prematurely say, let's not have this technology because it has bad use cases, right. but let things unfold. And as they unfold, be like, oh, this seems to be working well. Let's double down on this. And this seems to have very negative side effects. Let's maybe tax that or ban it or whatever, right? Um, and so to me, there's sort of this idea out there where it's like, let's not have innovation or let's prematurely limit all innovation because of all the bad things that could happen. That's clearly wrong. And then the other thing, which is let's just have unfettered innovation for all times is also wrong. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, I mean, Aristotle had this idea that the virtues are a middle path, right? And I think this is true for societies too. You don't want to clamp down on all innovation prematurely, but you also want to let innovation run completely unchecked. Right. So I call this the promise and the peril in, uh, in the hype machine. So let me ask you about, uh, one more Web3 technology, or I should say it's so social organization, which is DAOs, the concept of, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations. Um, and obviously having gone through the same PhD program, we will have read similar, uh, um, economics history, uh, you know, you could run through the Nobel Prizes from Coase to Williamson and so on and so forth uh, around transaction cost economics and the idea that the reason we have organizations is because the transaction costs in the market exceed the transaction costs inside the organization to do things, to do certain tasks. So, for instance, to solve the principal agent problem or to, uh, you know, um, you know, an employment relationship is needed perhaps when the work is open-ended and you're not exactly sure what to contract on. It's like, I want you to take that hill over there, but I'm not exactly sure how we're going to take it. And I need you to be an employee if I'm going to commit all these resources to taking that hill. The way that I look at 
DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, is that they fundamentally change the transactions costs within a market of contracting and or within the boundaries of the firm. And so they're naturally going to change the boundaries of the firm. And we've even seen this with information technology. Our advisor has done, uh, you know, uh, research that shows that investments in information technology can change the boundaries of the firm by essentially changing those transaction costs. So is there uh, a real um, possibility of decentralized autonomous organizations, either for narrow tasks, for broader or more complex tasks? Can it be applied to voting? What's the difference between, you know, a company with voting shares and a DAO? That's a typical question. So what's your opinion on DAOs and, and, and the future of them? Yeah, so um, I had the great honor to not just have Eric as my thesis mm. advisor, but also Bank Holmstrom. Oh, yes. Of course, Bank um, is in that line of um, Nobel-winning economists and who's done a lot of, I think, very lucid thinking. Um, so in my own dissertation and subsequently, you know, I, I've thought about, there being some basically um, frontier trade-off between the degree of coordination and the degree of incentivization. So in a pure market, you're highly incentivized, um, but certain types of coordination, you know, where you can't ex ante specify become very difficult. In an employee relationship, you know, you can extremely highly coordinate, but now you've dealt incentives way back. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the question is, do we now have these new network models? And I think the answer is very much yes. Um, I would also say we're still very early again in inventing these. And your comment earlier about many of the people in the space being very young and not knowing much history is probably apt in the sense that there is a lot of knowledge around governance and we're kind of reinventing it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Susan, my wife and I have funded some work um, by Nathan Schneider at the University of Colorado to, mm -hmm. to kind of do. And didn't he write the forward to uh, or he, he was the editor of Italic's proof of stake book is that the same nathan schneider maybe that's not. a great question yeah. I, I don't okay. know it's possible okay. maybe um, i'm but, getting but that wrong nathan is doing this um sort of compendium of kind of governance history and methods it's like a a wiki of a okay. governance wiki um because there's so many different forms and and things that people have experimented with going back thousands of years with governance so uh, I do think that's important mm. to, to this kind of archaeology of governance um, if we're going to create new on-chain enabled governance systems. But yes, I do think that we have changed the shape or the places on this sort of trade-off that can be occupied. And we've created some new spots that weren't previously reachable. And mm. that's powerful. Mm. Yeah, I'm very excited to see where that goes. Um, and is it different than uh, shareholders of a company? What shares are to companies, I do think to some degree, tokens are to networks. Mm -hmm. I mean, analogies always have issues, but that is a good starting point for thinking about it. Meaning they provide both an incentive mechanism, just like shares provide an incentive mechanism because they give you access to discounted future value. Mm -hmm. Tokens, when constructed the right way, give you access to future discounted value of the network. Mm -hmm. And then shares are partially a governance mechanism mm -hmm. and tokens are partially a governance mm -hmm. mechanism. So. Uh, I do think that this is important. And there is, however, coming back to this idea of a regulatory headwind, there's, however, this problem where we have all this legal work around companies. And what we're now trying to do is we're like, oh, we're going to just treat networks like companies. And we're going to apply the SEC rules and 
other regulations that we developed in the context of co corporations and we're going to apply them to networks. Mm -hmm. But networks are not the same thing as corporations. They share some features of corporations, but they're not the same thing. And what we really need is we need native network rules, rules governing networks. That's what we need. That's really interesting. I'm going to have to think about that for a little while because as we, so I've started a new Web3 research group at MIT and we've been <clears throat> kicking the tires and expanding our infrastructure, ingesting lots and lots of data so that we can kick the tires and we think that there are very fundamental questions that need to be asked, and I'm going to write that one down and, and have this conversation with you. Maybe next time I see you at DLD, we'll that we'll sounds back great. To it. Um, so I want to switch gears again and talk a little bit, riff on a thread that you started a minute ago, and and talk a little bit about the state of global politics. And I don't mean politics as in, you know, political parties and voting. I mean, sort of more political economy politics. So you said earlier that we are in this state of transition. Uh, the economy and large swaths of society are seeing certain uh, costs to that. Um, and it's creating a lot of populism. And around the world now you see uh, at least two trends. You're seeing an extremism uh, in both directions. So you're seeing um, attempts at political leaders to go very far to the left or very far to the right uh, in Europe, in the United States, in both directions. You're seeing a little bit of a hollowing out of the center. Um, and having many, many years ago been a student of political game theory, um, these things also come in cycles. So sure. as long as you go to the extremes and you abandon the middle, then the, the middle become, becomes an interesting sort of strategic place for someone to put themselves. So I'm wondering, what do you think is going on with regard to uh, extremism? Where, what is the source you know, the fundamental source of those changes coming from? Is it the economic situation we were talking about earlier? Um, and what can we ex expect in the in the short and medium term? Should we be hopeful? Should we be worried? Why and why not? Well, we should be very worried um, because the prior transitions went very poorly, right? So when we went from the hunter-gatherer stage to the agrarian age, basically the early agrarian societies wound up wiping out the remaining forager societies. Mm -hmm. And then when we went from the agrarian age to the industrial age, we had these bloody revolutions and ultimately two world wars. And we're in another one of these transitions. And something that we haven't mentioned at all yet is the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And so we have, we're in the midst of a transition, and then we've got this external force, which is, you know, this extraordinary warming of the Earth's oceans and atmospheric system that's proceeding at a rate that most people can't wrap their head around. Um, and so because we're unfortunately very short on new ideas, it means we're getting polarization around old ideas. Mm -hmm. So, so much of the populism and so much of, you know, kind of the, the, um, the people who want to sort of move right is sort of this idea that you want to go backwards somehow to, mm -hmm. you know, some imagined good old days, good old days. And then a lot of the ideas on the left are, I think, equally tired, which is let's just have the state run everything. That's right. Which was sort of like, we've tried that. That doesn't actually work, That's by the right. way. <laughs> That's exactly. So right. why do we think it's going to work this time around? Um, and so 
Um, so I think there's this dearth of kind of saying there is a new way, there's a new society, there's a new social contract, there's maybe a new kind of um, moral philosophy. And because we have this dearth, we also have people flocking back to religions because when people feel very um, uncertain and dislocated, they are looking for firm ground and um, religion readily offers itself up. So I do think we have, this is the big um, kind of um, missing piece here and, and uh, you know, a big chunk of why I wrote The World After Capitalist to try and provide at least one point of view of what this might look like, where we might get to. So I'm optimistic as to where we could get to. I am quite pessimistic about how we're going to get there. Mm. Uh, I think it will be um, really unfortunate and tragic and brutal yet again. So what are some of the tangible, unfortunate, and and brutal things that we might expect? Well, I think we're heading there, right? Which is we, because of the climate crisis, certain things are getting scarce rapidly. We have an energy crisis. We will have a food crisis. When things get scarce, you get into distributional warfare um, of at all levels that can be within society and between societies. And mm-hmm. we'll see that again as well. So I just think, you know, we have... The reason the book is called The World After Capitalist, we have all the physical capital that we need. We're just deploying it in all the wrong ways, right? So um, instead of, for instance, right now, pointing a lot of our capital and saying, we're going to electrify everything, we're going to build lots of drawdown capability to take some of that existing CO2 and bring it back down, um, we're going to you know, give people who need it air conditioning. Like, we're just, we have a huge amount of productive capacity, but you know, it's pointed at the wrong things mm. at the moment. And um, unfortunately, I do think that requires some type of intervention. Um, you know, like in World War II, the U.S. took 50% of its productive capacity, give or take, and pointed it at the war effort. Mm. And I believe we're in a stage mm. where we need to do something similar when it comes to the climate crisis. Uh, and governments are a very, very long way from thinking about the problem the same way. Well, it's it's the horizon is is not in our favor in terms of political action, because the the congruence of political benefits to a politician and the benefits to solving the climate crisis don't work. And our inability as humans to think in that nonlinear, irreversible way also isn't in our favor, right? Possibly. Possibly. I do think there are these moments in time, though, when there, when the right politician and the right leader can tip the, the balance in the right direction. Because this isn't just about fighting the climate crisis. This is also about creating a world of cheap, abundant electricity. Mm-hmm. This is also about creating clean, oh, noise-free cities. So, like, it's not just, <clears throat> let's do this because, oh, my God, we're all going to die. But Let's also do this because if we do it right, we can get to this amazing place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think you th- this can't just be a doom and gloom that doesn't get people motivated. And I personally don't find it motivating. I think what's motivating is we have this big threat, which we've created ourselves um, by emitting like crazy for many years. But we also have this extraordinary opportunity to create extremely cheap electricity and energy and to create clean cities to reduce the amount of land we're using for agriculture. I mean, we have it within our technological capability to use much less land. Mm -hmm. And we can use that land for creating extraordinary experiences. Like we could have the Midwest could be like huge wildlife areas, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Or for making it cheaper for people to live. So 
what we can do now is quite extraordinary. It's just we have most of our capital kind of pointed at the wrong things. It's funny because um, that is a a triple plus judo move because I was thinking to myself as you were talking two minutes ago that the the first set of problems around the transition, which involve uh, scarcity and <clears throat> distributional warfare within societies and across societies, is actually a hindrance to dealing with the climate crisis because, uh, you know, oh, you're going to talk to me about if, you know, catastrophe a hundred years from now. I don't have food on my plate. Things are going worse for me economically. I want a politician that's going to take care of me today. I want policies and governments that are going to take care of me today, not worry about some future generation 500, a thousand years from now. Um, and therefore the distributional warfare, uh, is a, an impediment to dealing with the climate crisis. But what you're saying is that a savvy leader or a set of leaders or leadership, uh, thought leadership could say that no, there's a threading of the needle here that is actually the solution to the short term distributional warfare and the long term climate crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. And Absolutely. That, that, that is something that, uh, I am not seeing any politician cogently explain today. Much like we, like the U.S. didn't just defeat Hitler, the U.S. also created its, its economic machine in the same go. Oh, that's actually a good analogy. I think that uh, how do we get this message into the hands of a of a swarthy politician that could actually really make some make some good use of it by talking more about it? That's right. a good starting point okay. right okay. here, right All now. Right. I love it. I, that that is enlightening, and I and that's another thing that I'm going to write down and and go back and think about because it, it's true that you know, for example, I love you know some pop culture attempts to deal with this um uh that movie don't look up which is sure. very much the whole you know like we're all gonna die mentality uh, i love it because you know as a scientist that tries to speak truth to power and say no here's the data this is really what's going on oh do i have to really write a book about this for you to listen to me type of scientist <laughs> um it speaks to my heart that uh that the scientists uh in that movie have such a hard time getting this very simple message across by the way the biggest impact that that movie had was on activating climate scientists to speak up more oh i love it that. had a yeah. huge impact within the climate science community yeah that's great and i that that alone is a good is a good Massive. thing. Yeah. Um, so let's talk briefly about uh, social media. Um, the last time I saw you in person, I think, was at DLD in Germany. And there was a lot of conversation at that point around social media and around what the future of social media would be. Um, certainly we've had a lot of talk and very little action or change, although there are some things on the horizon that seem to suggest that we might have a little bit more change in the near future. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that, uh, when I wrote my book, The Hype Machine, it was a moment where it was important to draw attention to the fact that no social media is not just meaningless entertainment. It's having dramatic effects on sure. our information ecosystem, our economies, our politics and our, our governments and as well, 
uh, our public health, you know, misinformation and the trajectory of the pandemic. And obviously you can't pin everything in society on social media, but it is one of the, one of the important ways in which information ebbs and flows. And then that information turns into decisions and opinions, sure. which drive politics, which drive individual consumer behavior and so on. Now I think fast forward, I think that message has landed. I think people understand that social media is an important force in society. We're now sort of at the point at which we're debating around the margins of, oh, well, is it censorship uh, or is it moderation? And, you know, these kind of debates that we have. Um, three things that are sort of on the on the horizon in my mind now are that, uh, number one, you're seeing a little bit more movement towards um, uh, recognizing market concentration, which sure. I think we hadn't before in the level that we should have. You know, I have a whole uh, chapter on that in the hype machine. Another one is this notion of thinking about regulation as it relates to mm-hmm. moderation. So the Supreme Court is taking up uh, Section 230 and in two different cases, um, one, uh, you know, that has the potential to to really change the landscape of um, you know, the shield for civil liability of uh, these big platforms like Facebook and so on. There's the Platform Transparency and Accountability Act, which is saying, hey, we don't even know, you know, what's in the cigarettes, right? right. How can we make policy if we have no access to understanding what's going on under the hood? And then obviously, this sort of very theatrical show around Elon Musk buying Twitter and what a completely div- different vision for one of the major social media platforms might look like and might be. So with all of that sort of raw material on the table for you, what what is your current thinking around the state of social media, around what the key challenges are, uh, where things are going, and and what you hope to see, what you think we will see? To me, this fundamentally ties into this idea that we need new regulation for networks. So Twitter is a network, Facebook is a network, TikTok is a network, they're all networks. And fundamentally, the shift we need to make, I believe, is all networks need to be programmable. So the reason why we're so obsessed with what is Twitter's moderation policy, what is Twitter's timeline policy, what's the algorithm that assembles the timeline, is because there's just one Twitter, and it's not programmable. And so the only moderation that matters is Twitter's moderation. The only timeline that matters is Twitter's timeline, the one that the algorithm it has defined. And so I believe the fundamental shift we need to make is we networks need to be programmable. That shifts power back from the network owner to the people who are participating in the network. And you could very easily see how, you know, um, you could get much less of these sort of crazy amplification cycles. And people always say, well, Albert, people are not going to write their own software. And I'm not expecting people to write their own software, but I think other people will write software for us that will represent us vis-a-vis the networks. To give a concrete analogy where this has happened to a degree is open banking. So it used to be that once you were basically on your bank's portal, you were totally locked in. Um, and so there was no innovation. Like whatever the bill pay was, was the bill pay you got. Whatever the lending was, was the lending you got. But if I can auth other services into my bank account, now there's sudden Somebody else can offer me credit. Somebody else can offer me bill pay. Somebody else can offer me, you know, new financial products. Um, and I don't need to move my stuff somehow. And so 
If we bring the same kind of programmability to these networks, we will unleash a huge amount of innovation on top of these networks. And I believe many, if not, it, this is not going to solve all problems. Nothing, there's no panacea. This is not going to solve all problems. But by starting with the market power, by starting with the idea that we're so worried about who gets to decide what's on Twitter, it's because there is the central entity that exercises all this power. And if we can start to really diffuse that power, now we can start to think about what are less draconian interventions, right? Because the idea of Elon Musk buying it is a draconian intervention. It's just it, another centralized authority, it, exactly, even more centralized. Exactly. It's just, you know, um, this just, you know, um, welcome to the new boss, much like the old boss, right? right. I mean, it'll just, <laughs> so, so, and it's, it's fascinating to me how both politicians across the spectrum they just want them to do different things, but they want them to do what they want, as opposed to saying, no, this is a network, and we need to allow innovation on top of that. And then once we allow innovation on top of that, let's figure out what some of the issues are that we're dealing with. Um, I think that's really, really crucial. And it goes back to the idea that I also described earlier, that we're not going to solve some of these disinformation problems by somehow saying we're putting the government back in charge of information or we're putting the New York Times back in charge of information. It's not like the New York Times, for instance, got like the Iraq war information right or early, right. early, you know, oh, don't wear masks. I mean, this there, we have to admit that we have to create authority in new ways from scratch. We have to reconstitute what that means. I think Martin Gurry's book is mm. excellent in his diagnosis of how we've gotten to this point. I think the recommendations at the end are very feeble. And partially why they're feeble is because in order to get this right, we're coming back to this idea, we need to change everything. For instance, we need to change the school system deeply, fundamentally, mm. in order to get to a place where we can have new authority emerging in a world where anybody can and should be able to publish things. Mm. We don't want to take that away. That's mm. a real breakthrough. How important is interoperability to this future? I believe interoperability comes more or less by itself when systems are opened up. You don't even necessarily need to publish a standard. It's just as long as I can interact programmatically. Interoperability in the sense of formats used to matter much more when, you know, code was hard to write and when we didn't have AI and so forth. But I think today it's just, does the system have an API, yes or no? And can this API be shut down, yes or no? If Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, had APIs that are mandated by law and can't be shut down. So if anything I can do, the way I conceptualize this, anything I can do in the app, I should be able to do programmatically. Mm. With my account, not with your account. Mm. I don't, I have the keys to my account, mm. not to your account, mm. right? Um, but the idea that I pick up my phone, which is a supercomputer, and I'm reduced to my thumbs mm. and the wet between my ears when I'm holding my supercomputer in my hands, mm. it's just an absurd state of the mm. world. Mm. That thing should be working on my behalf right mm. now. Mm. It should be able to scan the timeline of everybody I follow. And it should be able to tell me, by the way, I think, Albert, this is an interesting tweet. It shouldn't be Twitter telling me that. Uh, that's interesting. So that is programmed by you or someone programs on your behalf using the supercomputer in your pocket to make something exactly the way you want it rather than Twitter giving you yeah. and, and, a and million it's sort of like hamburgers served. Either we can program these networks or are we being programmed by the networks. Oh, that's a very interesting way to think about it. I really appreciate that perspective. Would you have invest in Elon Musk? Is he an entrepreneur that you think is... Uh, is uh, I, there's no doubt that Elon Musk right. is an extraordinary entrepreneur. I mean, anybody yeah. who... like right. The facts speak so clearly in this favor, right? That's I mean. Right. Um, he has built Tesla, which has moved the car industry along. He has built a company that's giving us reusable rockets right. that has dramatically <laughs> cut the cost to access to space. I mean, 
How can you look at this and be like, but does that mean he's going to be good at running Twitter? No. This is like right. one is a socioeconomic system and the other are engineered systems. That, um, that, that answer sounds almost identical to the answer that I gave on a podcast yesterday when I was being interviewed and asked that exact same question. I think this is this is exactly correct. He is extraordinary, um, but doesn't mean that he has the skills to run Twitter per se. Right. So what's the worst mistake that you've made in investing? The biggest sort of uh in investing in a comp- investing in a company because I thought it was going to be successful but I didn't care about what the company did. Ah. And of course the company wound up not being successful and I was sitting in all these board meetings thinking about rescue missions and restructuring and everyone was like why am I here? Hmm. Yeah. And so the the initial investment was purely an economic motivation. It's purely like I think that's going to make money. Right. And right. Ever since I, I'm very glad to have had that experience early in my career. Ever since then, I've invested in things where, like, Passion. I want to see this in, exist in the world. I want to see this product. I want, I'm either going to use this or I know other people will use this. I see how this creates value, not just to the company, but to society. And I care about it. I mean, yeah. in this case, I think if this company had worked, it would have created value, but to a set of customers and in a way where I just personally have no relationship to it. Yeah. It's funny because it goes back a little bit to the conversation we were having. A lot of people like to give the advice that, oh, follow your passion, you know, follow your, um, your, your priorities in society, your passion and priorities in society. I agree with that. I think that is a very good thing because the road is so difficult. You have to really be able to have the grit as you described. The thing about that advice is that it forces people to do something which itself is very hard, which is to really examine internally what and why your passions are the way they are and what your priorities are. And that's not something that you can sort of like you know, armchair theorize about. You really have to go deep and think really clearly about who you are, what you believe, what you hope to see in the world and why, and really sort of second guess yourself and all of those dimensions. And once you kind of lay that foundation in a way, then it's very easy to pursue your passions. And that's exactly what you need to succeed in the sense, right? Super well said. Okay. So what about your biggest success? Like in terms of, uh, you know, what's the home run in investing? Uh, and I would say, you know what, let's not, let's not say investing. What is your, what is your biggest success writ large? My biggest success is that, let me say, as, let me, before you answer, let me say in terms of your career, let's put kids and family. Yeah, and so no, no, but, but yeah. th- th- I think this relates to the okay. thing we just talked about. Okay. My biggest success is that I managed at what I consider to be fairly advanced age, meaning in my early to mid 40s, it's so about a decade plus ago now, to actually still develop a mindfulness practice and to go from somebody who got very easily triggered and kind of wasn't in command of my rational faculties when those happened and I would kind of get angry and aggravated mm. um, to somebody whom this rarely happens to today. And that is a massive, extraordinary transformation. And if I could tell my younger self one thing is like, do that way earlier. Wow. You know? That's and, amazing. So when you say mindfulness practice, you're talking about meditation, you're talking. So the, I've tried a lot of different things. And the thing that works for me is conscious breathing exercises, which I now do every morning and every evening. First thing, basically after I get up and last thing before I go to sleep. And uh, how long is each session? Um, it's actually only a few minutes. Now. Okay. 
Um, but I, it's sort of like a refresh now. Oh, I constantly. love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So, so it's funny because we were sitting in the living room last night, uh, with my son doing, uh, meditation, you know, um, and he is somebody who has, he's nine, he's had his, uh, in and out of meditation. So when he was much younger, he used to med- He used to love meditating before he went to sleep. And then one day he said to me, Papa, I don't really want to do this, you know, right now or anymore. And, you know, ha- knowing what type of kid I must have been, given what type of adult I was, I was sure not to push him <laughs> to try to do something. <laughs> because anybody tells me to do something, oh, yeah. I'm running the other way. Right. So, so, uh, so I let it go. And then now he's returning to it himself. He's bringing it back and asking for it and wanting it's it. Wonderful. So, it's, so, so it's amazing that that's the, that's the answer that you give, because I do think that that really calms the mind and enables better decision making. It enables more fulfillment in the very activities and being present in any particular thing that you're doing in this conversation, in a meal at home with your family, in a business meeting, in a in a big decision in a personal life or in a business life. I think that's great advice. I, I hope people hear that and take that to heart. Two, two questions to sort of uh, uh, lead us out of this conversation. One, what is the biggest fear you have for our kids and what's the biggest hope you have for our kids? We both talked about our kids on this, on this podcast. Um, what's the biggest hope? I guess for you, it's a little bit different. They're older, right? Mine's nine years, uh, in college and have just graduated college. Let's say future generations from like 10 to 25. What's the biggest fear? What's the biggest hope for you? I mean, the big fear is that we're going to botch this transition really, really badly, as badly as the prior one, and that things are going to get really, really ugly with kind of a breakdown of civil society down to even basic things like, can you go to the store and get food, you know, mm. feed yourself, feed your family? Um, so that's my fear. My fear is that things could get really, really bad on at present course and speed, mm. just because we're so far behind on you know, having enough energy, we're so far behind on dealing with the emissions problem. We're so far behind on understanding these big networks and how to, you know, properly regulate them. So we have created a very combustible mix here uh, as a result. And my big hope is, my big hope is that we can, in fact, get to a point where we can unlock the power of all these extraordinary technologies, whether it is AI, whether it's our understanding now of human biology, for example, whether it is our ability now to access space cheaply. I mean, we have all these, we're on the threshold of all these beautiful things. Uh, and so it's just a question of how do we get through there and and so the threat and the opportunity are really very closely tied together. It's kind of this threading the needle that we talked about yeah. earlier with specifically the climate crisis, but it seems like that's true across the board in much of what humanity is experiencing. Yeah. I think that's a, that's really important to think about. So final question, which is people 18 to 25, you said, here's what I would tell my younger self. What would you tell young Albert, 18 to 25 year old Albert, uh, men or women anywhere in the world, what advice would you give professionally and personally that you wish you had when you were that age? It's a hundred percent 
develop a mindfulness practice. And then the step immediately afterwards is really introspect what it is you want to do in your life and why. And by the way, that doesn't have to be a decision for the rest of your life, but like for the next 10 years or next 20 years, like why is it that you want to work on this? Um, I meet so many young people um, and I think schools have failed them. High-end schools, elite schools have failed them because they graduate from college or sometimes even from graduate school and they have no idea why and then, of course, they wind up being sucked into McKinsey and into Goldman Sachs and everybody else who's like, oh, I'll tell you what to work on. You mm. know? And so when we went around to go visit colleges for our kids, I was just shocked that none of the schools said, we will help you figure this out. All the schools talked about how great their gyms and their facilities and their programs and the food and how many choices they have and everything else. But this fundamental idea that this should be about helping you become, figuring out what it means to live the good life, mm. that was sort of absent. And I, I, I think this is a central question that people need to ask themselves, and they should ask themselves that question early in life, not once they have some midlife crisis. I love it. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. You are one of the busiest people in New York, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to really uh, go deep with me and have uh, a meaningful, long conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've got lots of notes for things that I want to follow up on personally. So, Albert, thank you very much. It's been a true pleasure. My pleasure. It was a fantastic conversation. Thanks. The Digital Insider with Sanana Rall is brought to you by the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Hosted by Sanana Rall, produced and edited by Carrie Reynolds. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Share today's episode and tag us on social media at MIT underscore IDE. To leave a voicemail for Sanan for the chance to have your question answered live on air in a future episode, call 617-468-8423 or you can email MITDigitalInsider at gmail.com. Visit our website, ide.mit.edu slash podcast for more.